Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Good evening. Good evening. Why don't we stand and we'll begin in prayer. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever and under the ages of ages. Amen. And make us worthy, O Master, to dare with confidence and without condemnation to call upon Thee, the heavenly God, as upon a Father, and to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, both now and ever, and to the ages of ages. Amen. Thank you, Father Joseph, and thank you all for coming this evening. Our speaker this evening uh, received his doctorate in philosophy from Catholic University of America in 1997. Uh, Dr. Cutterback writes and lectures on various topics, including virtue, culture, natural law, contemplation, and friendship. He is a third-order lay Dominican and currently teaches in the philosophy department at Christendom College. His book, True Friendship, Where Virtue Becomes Happiness, was republished in 2010. Dr. Cutterback, did you bring any books with you tonight? Classic. Next time. Um, he most recently released a new lecture series with Catholic courses on Aristotle's ethics, a guide to the, ca to the good life. Um, he also keeps up a blog titled Bacon's, Bacon to Acorns. Ba from Bacon to Acorns. From Bacon to Acorns. Is that turned around? From Acorns to Bacon. Whatever. It's about pigs. <laughs> in which he publishes his own reflections on philosophy and the household. So if you haven't gone on his blog, he's going to come up here and actually tell you what the correct blog address is for that. Uh, he's an avid gardener and hunter and lives with his wife and six children in the Shenandoah Valley and is a dear friend of mine. Please join me in welcoming back Dr. John Cutterback. Thank you. Thank you. We might be dear friends, but you're never going to do a commercial for my website. <laughs> Ever. Bacon from acorns. It's not about pigs. <laughs> though it is named after my pigs, who are happily munching on acorns as we speak. It is good to be here. And, and truly, thank you for coming out. It, it, it is a remarkable thing that, that you all are willing to come out and, and give up in the evening. And if nothing else, it's certainly not lost on me. And it's, it, it's great to be here with you. Things, things are not always what they appear. I have to tell you, I had a fascinating uh, a little experience last night at the homecoming at Christendom. 
it, it's always great to see old students, and so we were having a cocktail reception. And uh, so I was visiting with a, with a handful of students, a number of people through the night. You never get to visit with as many as you'd like to. But there was one particular young man who graduated a few years back that I spoke with for about 20 minutes. We talked about a good, good number of things. And um, after I was all done, I was leaving. And as I was, as I was walking out, I noticed that he was behind me. And I said goodnight to a few more people, saying hello to everyone. And once I kind of got past the crowd, th there he was right next to me. And he, and he said, I turned and he said, Dr. Cutterback, I, I have to ask you whether you've had too much to drink. <laughs> and the fascinating thing is, I, 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 I have lots of problems in my life, but it so happens, given a constitution where I can't really drink too much alcohol, I've never been drunk in my life. So I, and I turned to him, I said, well, um, I, I did have half a bottle of water, <laughs> but I, I don't think I've had too much to drink. Well, we, we had an interesting conversation after that where, mind you, I had spoken with this young man for 20 minutes. And here he is telling me that he was worried about me and he wanted to make sure I hadn't drunk too much. Well, in any case, I, I assured him that I was going to be fine and, and wandered off. So then I was going over to the dance where I now have two college-aged girls and I was going to go in there and kind of check up on them. Here I am thinking, you know, a little self-conscious as I walk in. What are people going to see when I, when I come in? Are they going to see the same thing that the student saw? Well, in any case, I, the, the rest of the night went, went fine. But Things are not always what they appear, and sometimes we need to make an effort to see things as they are. And the topic tonight is something that is, is, is very fundamental, it's very foundational. I might not say anything here tonight that you haven't heard before, but I want to remind you of the Greek word for truth is aletheia. I don't know Greek, but I've picked up a few little things because there's, there's so much in the etymology of important Greek terms. And you often know, you know, often an A at the beginning of the word in English means not something. Well, we get that from the Greek. The word aletheia in Greek means not covered or not hidden or not forgotten. The Greek word from which Aletheia comes is actually the river of forgetfulness. So Aletheia is when something, when reality is uncovered, when it is not forgotten. And it brings to my mind these, these fundamental things that we'll be looking at just very briefly here this evening together, these fundamental things we can never go over them too much, for if nothing else, at least while we're together here, going over these things, they will not be forgotten. For ladies and gentlemen, it's simply the case that these fundamental truths, these four simple things that I'd like to look at with you here this evening are by and large, forgotten all around us. Human persons all around us, perhaps, and surely at least sometimes, including ourselves. We go about our day 
in forgetfulness of who, of what we are. In other words, we are not living in the truth when we have forgotten these fundamental things. So I've chosen just four things that are simple truths. All of these truths, ladies and gentlemen, were seen by the great Greek philosophers. Here I'm particularly going to be taking Aristotle as my guide. They're very, they're very simple things, but I find them profoundly inspiring also, very moving in helping us understand how we should live. You might know the famous Greek phrase. It was inscribed at Delphi. It simply said, know thyself. We Christians, too, should think in those terms. This great command, know thyself. So tonight will be an effort to know ourselves better. Not, it's important to know ourselves in the sense of knowing ourselves as individuals, say particular strengths or weaknesses that I have, and our friends can help us understand particular things about ourselves we need to know. That's an important part of know thyself. But there's a more foundational thing. And that is knowing fundamental truths of who we are as human beings. We need to know ourselves. If we don't know ourselves, what do we have? Again, we will be living in forgetfulness. Here are the four things we're going to look at. First, we all share a human nature. Once we come to appreciate this point, it's so beautiful. We all share human nature. And every time we come upon a human being, and you always know a human when you see one, you know you are coming upon someone who shares the same fundamental identity with you. The second point is that we are soul-body composite. This fundamental truth that we are soul and a body. Thirdly, that our identity is to be rational. So simple, yet so profound. Our identity is to be rational. And then finally, we are made for relationship. So that there is a human nature that we have, that we are soul and a body, that we're rational and that we're made for relationship. And those are the four things I'd like to hold in memory here with you tonight. We share a human nature. What do we mean by this great term human nature? Aristotle was the first one who used the term nature. I'd like to tell you just a little bit about how he used that term so then we can have some sense of what we mean by human nature. Here's a really neat thing. The greatest philosophers, the greatest thinkers, noticed the simplest, most profound things, and they kept turning them around before their vision. Aristotle notices, he looked at the world around him, this very simple division, this very simple distinction. There are things that exist by nature, and then there are all these other things that we humans have made. So I introduced this to a, to a classroom of students. We just run a very simple drill. Just kind of make a list of things in your mind, point to different things in the room, and ask, does this exist by nature? Or does it exist by, as Aristotle would say, by art? In other words, by the know-how. has been brought about by our making. Very simple distinction. Everyone sees it. Here's the really neat thing. He is particularly interested in trying to understand things that exist by nature, do we stop and recognize there's a whole set of kinds of things that we had absolutely nothing to do with the making of. What they are is simply given. We have nothing to do with it. We simply discover it. 
There are trees, and there are birds, and there's water, and there's human beings. One of the first questions that absolutely jumps out, that we're not even going to look at at all, but it's a great question to realize it jumps out. If we didn't make these things exist by nature, where do they come from? This is one of the most important questions to ask. There are many great important questions we won't ask tonight. Aristotle doesn't concern himself with that first of all. Asking that simple question will lead us to the very center of reality. Everything that exists by nature got its nature from somewhere. But that is not even our first concern. He just first looks at them and he wonders about them. He realizes that they are, again, given. This is something that you discover. This is not something that we make up. But we look and he wanted to recognize, first of all, what, what do we notice when we look at these things that exist by nature? Okay, so, that, so that's where Aristotle starts. Then he comes up with this term then, nature, to refer to the natures of these things that exist by nature. Two quick things that I want to note to you then that Aristotle notices about all these things, and let's see it in the case of human nature. What nature means then, in any case of something that exists by nature, is it's some structure, some way of being that many things share in common. Many things that are different as individuals, but essentially the same. One in kind, many individuals. Very simple point, but I like sometimes to say to my students, a very simple question. Are you and I the same? And a very important answer to that question is yes. We differ in an important sense, in as much as we are distinct individuals. But I wouldn't look at a tree, as it were, and say, are you and I the same? Although I have a certain common identity with the tree, too. But with every one of you sitting in this room, you and I are essentially the same. There's some given structure, again, that we had nothing to do with, that we discover, and it is in you in the same way as it is in me. And this has profound implications. Ladies and gentlemen, do you realize that I'm going to point this out about each of the points that we go through? This is fundamentally denied by many currents in our society. You see, for instance, though we're not particularly going to go here today, this is the foundation for understanding that there are morals that we share in common. If we are not essentially the same in kind, then many things would fall apart. But being essentially the same in kind, there's so much that we can and should do together based upon our sharing and understanding that we are the same in kind. Here's another thing about then nature that Aristotle noticed when he looked at these things, again, that exist by nature, that makes them be different from any artifact. It's a little bit of a tricky point, but you'll see it. I like to put it this way. Aristotle saw the things that exist by nature are going somewhere. They're, they're going somewhere. They're designed to become more than they are. 
While there is something unchanging about the natures of things, there is something about each thing that exists by nature that is this reality of they are inclined towards some fullness, towards some further perfection, Aristotle would say, towards some flourishing that he calls their end, their goal, that they will not be complete until they get to. This is the same for everything that exists by nature. As Christians, we come along and have this insight of it. it it's amazing, and so simply how Aristotle saw this. But we can say, God's designed things so that nothing that he makes is already, when it first comes into existence or is first born, is already where it's supposed to be. There's a process whereby it comes there. But that process is given, it's already determined in the nature. Simple example, ladies and gentlemen, I could use a pig as an example, but I'm going to go with an apple tree. <laughs> Consider an, an apple tree, young little apple tree, mature apple tree. They are the same in kind. They're absolutely the same in kind. They share tree nature fully and equally. But there is a very, very important difference. The full, mature apple tree that is bearing fruit has achieved what that nature clearly was all about getting to. And the really neat point is you do not understand that kind of thing. We don't understand that nature unless we understand that end or flourishing state that it is obviously designed to achieve. Ladies and gentlemen, you don't know pigs unless you have seen, honestly, a real flourishing pig. And you don't know apple trees unless you've seen a real flourishing apple tree. How many people are there, amazingly, that don't really even understand who they are because they have not, perhaps we have not yet seen what we are supposed to be. Is it interesting that sometimes that might explain why a figure such as Pope John Paul II just made people stand in amazement. But when you see someone like that, it's a moment where you say, even if not consciously, oh my goodness, that's what I'm supposed to be. And maybe for the first time we say, that is human nature. Because that is what anyone who's human should be in some important sense. Obviously not in the end in an identical way, but some fundamental way, that is what we're supposed to be. So this is, this is Aristotle's understanding of nature. Again, this shared is an objective structure. It's, it's given. When I say given, that means it's objective. It also means it's a kind of gift. And implied in that structure is something that we're supposed to be. And ladies and gentlemen, no matter how much time we spend living in denial 
of what we can and should be. It never changes that given reality of what our nature is. And Aristotle is in, in a beautiful position here to make a very profound point. Just philosophically speaking, what is human unhappiness? Human unhappiness is living in a state of not being what everything in us is calling us to be. And thus we are not happy. For Aristotle uses this great word, a natural thing only comes to rest when it achieves its end. And prior to that, there is no rest. You can see that in a very simple way in a tree that will keep striving, keep striving to get to the point where it has achieved what trees are to achieve. We're all in this together, ladies and gentlemen. It's all of our nature. Our second point, we are body-soul composites. This sounds so obvious. It sounds so straightforward. Ladies and gentlemen, I, I am absolutely convinced, and frankly, I've said this about each of the four points, and I don't know, maybe, perhaps in a special way, this one. This point has been missed by cultures, by philosophers, by thinkers, by people again and again and again. Who are we? This amazing and beautiful truth of somehow we are essentially both a soul and a body. We have to get that right. And if we don't get it right, we have who we are essentially wrong. We have to come to understand we are both a spiritual, literally an immaterial being, like unto the angels. Angels are, of course, purely immaterial, pure mind and will. It's, it's, it's hard for us, ladies and gentlemen, given this aspect of who we are, it's very hard for us to picture what we are. I'm going to come back to this. This is one of the fascinating things about it. us. Given our mode of knowing, to think about anything, we have to picture it. But ladies and gentlemen, the most important part of us is metaphysically unpicturable. But for us to think about things, we have to call up some type of picture. When I'm teaching at the college, I always say, ladies and gentlemen, that's why we're in a somewhat almost comic situation. If you go into the Christendom Chapel and you look at the front, on either side of the altar are two huge men with wings. And I say to our students, why in the world do we have a statue of men, half bird, standing on our altars? That's, I mean, the angels must smile when, for us, to picture them, we give them <laughs> wings. Because one thing I can absolutely assure you of, ladies and gentlemen, angels don't fly. <laughs> and they certainly don't have wings. But there they are in the church, flitting around. <laughs> So we have this fascinating situation. Likewise, what do we picture? We have a soul. 
We are a soul. And in a sense, you can almost see it sometimes behind people's eyes, but you're not seeing it. You're seeing the eyes of an embodied soul. And there's nothing in the world like that. But you still can't see the soul. So we, but we are truly both. And people fall off the cliff on both sides, ladies and gentlemen. If you turn us into an angel, we're going to lose everything. If you turn us into just an animal, we lose everything. So we have to get that straight. How do I want to express the key truth? I would put it to you this way. Our bodies serve and incarnate spiritual realities. Our bodies serve and incarnate, literally, put into the flesh. You know, the term for incarnation literally just means something's been put into the flesh. Of course, when you talk about the incarnation, theologically speaking, you're talking about God taking on flesh. Here I'm not talking about God, I'm talking about us. There's a very incarnated aspect of man. Spiritual realities take on flesh, as it were, while still being spiritual. So a key to understanding who we are is to realize Every single bodily thing about us, every bodily part, every bodily motion, has a spiritual, as it were, significance. And everything that is spiritual has a corresponding bodily aspect. And to get that right is to, well, is to get right human life. But the key here really is this. It was in that word serve. Aristotle put this in, in a way that's so abstract it's almost comic. He has the principle. We won't go through the terminology, then I'll just say it, but you'll see the point. He says that matter is for the sake of form. So the body is for the sake of the soul. If we want to understand why we have precisely the bodies we do. We will only understand that if we understand the spiritual realities that these bodies incarnate and serve. And that is the glory of these bodies. The, the beautiful thing here, ladies and gentlemen, is that it's when we see this point that we, in fact, most value and honor our bodies, for we see what they're really for. Quick example. Think about this. I love to use uh, as my example kind of, of getting this right. When everything is a Benedictine monk, I just take that as, as an example. When, when things are properly ordered in the relationship of body and soul, everything will flourish just right when everything's in its place. So look at this one. We could give a great example of a flourishing family life, but let's, let's go to, we don't often, I think, appreciate the great religious vocation. Let's just go to the Benedictine monk. Picture in his life how everything is in its place. The monastic tradition is highly attentive to 
appropriate food and rest and exercise, not to mention beautiful art and beautiful music and, and working with your hands in the garden, in the soil. All these bodily things have a great significance. They are in no way, anyone who tells you that the Catholic monastic tradition frowns upon the body knows not of what he speaks. The body is understood for what it is. And it is cultivated and honored for the sake of the spiritual realities that it serves. What's first in the monastic life? The worship of God. But note how all of those things, whether it's the wax candles that the bees that are out in the yard are making, or the nutritious food that is grown so that the body can be healthy, so that they can concentrate on their prayers. They know how to treat their body, including disciplining it and doing penance in reparation for their own sins and ours. But that's it's always in the context honoring their bodies, that they discipline them. So note how when the spiritual things come first, ladies and gentlemen, as in my example here, everything's in its place. The body flourishes, is, is what it should be. Turn that around and look at, consider with me our own culture for a moment. That is fixated on the body and its pleasures. What do we get? I suggest for your consideration at the end of the day, what do we get? And this is a great illustration of this philosophical point. If we put things out of order, if we take what should have been subordinated, subordinated, and we put it first, we lose both. We lose spiritual goods and bodily goods. Note how the culture that is hedonistic and puts bodily pleasures first, it abandons the spiritual goods, cannot appreciate them in its overemphasis of the bodily, and amazingly, does not even appreciate the body that it is fixated with. And we live in many ways, amazingly, in an unhealthy, and an ugly material culture that has put bodily things first. So, a central truth in being holding in memory who we are is to realize this fundamental challenge that we have, this fundamental truth about who we are, that there's the immaterial or spiritual, and there's the body, and they are to have a beautiful order. And that order is precisely, and here actually we can simply go biblical and see this same point that Aristotle would have seen from a natural viewpoint. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these other things will be given us besides. Put first things first. Put our spiritual life first and see the connection. Put spiritual goods first in family life. Spouses, put our real relationship first. And all other things will be given us besides. I don't even need to pause there, ladies and gentlemen, to point to the obvious example. Isn't it astounding? of a culture that, pardon me for referring for a moment to the ugliness, 
that in the relationship between men and women, put sex first, seems to have no enjoyment in it. Whereas those who put spiritual goods first, well, everything's in its place. That's just one little snapshot of the broader truth. Put spiritual goods first and everything will fall into place bodily. Go on to my third point. We are rational. Again, talk, talk about an, an exercise in, 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 in stating the obvious. But again, something that is really denied and not lived by our culture. We are designed to see the truth and to live the truth rationally. This led Plato and Aristotle actually to assert that the human good, when you, when you hear this line, you can, you can smile to yourself and think, do they, take, do they expect anyone to take them seriously? The human good can be summed up simply in this way, to live rationally, well. That is literally a quotation from Aristotle. Reason, this amazing power, it's not only, ladies and gentlemen, what sets us apart. It's not just what happens to make us be a little above, a little bit different from a dog. It is the heart of the matter. It is at the heart of everything human that you and I have the power to grasp rationally reality. Consider, I love doing this, and again, I'm so honored that you all are here. It's, there's nothing like looking out at you, and you're looking at me, and I know that we're thinking together. Just imagine how we're in such a totally different world than anything that ever, ever goes on in your smartest dog. It's just there's nothing that even begins to approach what you and I are doing right now. This is our identity. It overflows into everything else. But to recognize that we are made, just we are constituted to be creatures of, of truth, to live, to go back to our opening etymology, to live in memory. We cannot live a truly human life unless we live in the memory of a whole set of truths. We have to be conscious, aware, and grasping, perceiving of fundamental truths. Otherwise, we're not doing the human thing. We could, we could run a little experiment. It's, it's a hard one to run because it's just so much like the water that we swim in. Think of anything that is important in life. And I ask, would it have any meaning if you weren't rational? Choose whatever it is. Choose whatever it is that's most important, which we most enjoy doing in the day, anything that we value. And now picture that, T take out rationality, take out our, ra our ability to be knowingly involved here. Think of all those precious moments. I just, as I was driving, I just thought, oh, maybe I'll just, I'll just use an example of my favorites. I don't know whether you all know Paul Harvey's famous uh, 
and it wasn't a poem, it was just a little thing he wrote called God Made a Farmer. It was actually used in a Super Bowl commercial a couple of years ago, and it, it, was, it was very, very moving. But at the end of this, this riff, when God made a farm and the Paul Harvey did, it comes to the point where it just ends, this is a paraphrase, but ends by saying, of the farmer. And as he sits and he turns to his son and says, what do you want to do, son? And his son looks at him and says, Dad, I want to do what you do. So God made a farmer. Right. So I just think great moments like this. What's that? What is that if it's not the one person and another person had a meeting of their minds and they understood one another? Nothing human is human if there's not rationality, if grasping the truth and living according to the truth. Ladies and gentlemen, the notion of virtue is nothing other than this, living rationally well. If you'd be so kind as to take a quick peek at your, at your handout, I just want to show you here, I didn't read you the first quotation from Aristotle about the relationship of soul and body. I'm going to just leave that as it is. I just will read the first one. Aristotle, soul and body. The soul is the cause or source of the living body. The terms cause and source have many senses, but the soul is the cause of its body alike in all three senses which we explicitly recognize. It is the source or origin of movement. It's the end or the essence or form of the whole living body. A little bit of philosophical lingo going on there, but I just wanted to put that before your eyes. Of Here is a man from nat natural reason who is able to see very clearly we're essentially soul and body, but the priority of the soul, the beautiful priority of the soul that actually gives the proper dignity to the body. Point two, quotation two. If the function of man is an activity of the soul according to reason, what most is human life? What most constitutes humans as different as what they are? It's to be able to live, quote, according to reason. Doesn't mean just thinking about things, it means living in a rational way. So then the human good turns out to be activity of a soul in accordance with virtue. The beautiful thing, ladies and gentlemen, this is a whole another lecture, a whole another course in itself in ethics, but I just want to point out because it fits right here. In just calling to mind again, trying to hold in mind this beautiful point of our rationality. The wise are really able to reduce key insights in down to very few simple insights. One simple thing that you can say about the good human life is it is living according to reason well. Everybody, everybody thinks, everybody uses reason, everybody, every human in some sense is living in a quote rational way, but to live according to the truth, that is to live rationally well. And that, in its different forms, is what the Greeks called the virtues. So living courageously, living temperately, living justly is precisely, they would say, nothing more or less than you have used your reason to see the truth and to live that truth. And that's what we call virtue. And if we're not living virtuously, we're not living in accord with the truth. We're not living rationally. I'm kind of packing in a bit here, but there's another point I want to go even further, and then we'll come to our fourth point and we'll close. Not only 
Do we need to be living the truth? There's a kind of primacy, ladies and gentlemen, to our ability simply to grasp the higher things. That we are made for vision. I'd like to look a little further here. In quotation number four. Joseph Pieper, who I unconditionally recommend to you, many of his books have been published by uh, Ignatius Press. He's a German philosopher of the 20th century. Uh, some of his works are more difficult than others. Anything he writes is beautiful. After we have accomplished, with an admirable amount of intelligence and hard work, all that is necessary, after we have provided for the basic needs of life, produced the essential foodstuff, protected the realm of life itself, after all this, was the meaning of the life that we have thus made possible. How do we define a truly human life? So I want to pause. Isn't that a fabulous question? Our society, ladies and gentlemen, has given up on asking that question. They think there's so many different answers to it, you can't ask it. Joseph Pieper is suggesting you have to ask, what at the end of the day is human life most of all about? He gives his answer, and he's just echoing Aristotle and the Christian tradition in the next quotation when he says, not only in the life to come, but also in his material existence and history, man is, to the very roots of his being, a creature designed for and desiring vision. And this is true to such a degree that the extent of a man's happiness is only as great as his capacity for contemplation. When he says vision, he means grasping something rationally. We are designed to be able to see the most important things. And in that, most of all, our human nature comes to its completion. That probably sounds strange in the saying of it. And I throw at you the challenge, if it sounds strange in the saying of it, it's because we're living in a culture that is explicitly seeking to deny it. We can talk about that a little bit more in the question and answer. I want, to, I want to turn to my fourth and final point. We flourish only in relationship. Here's the great point here. At the end of the day, I'd put it this way. If there's any truth to what Joseph Peoples just said, we can just take that another step. For we would be, we'd be missing the boat if we didn't tie things together with this. Sure, we're designed for vision. We have this body and soul that if we keep things in the proper order, we'll be able to flourish. But at the end of the day, it's not just about my being able to do this, my living virtuously, or my using my reason well and having order in my life. Human nature is so designed that our only true flourishing, our only true happiness, is when we do that, together. When we do that together with friends, with our family, with the broader community to a certain extent, with the church, all of those could be looked at in themselves. I've chosen simply to put this quotation about friendship here as the final quotation on the page. 
Without friends, no one would choose to live, though he had all other goods. The beautiful thing is, Aristotle saw very, very clearly Take all the things that he does in his ethics and says about what it means to be human and have a body and soul and to live rationally and to have the virtues. That all fundamentally comes down to, isn't this astounding that he saw this naturally? That really, then what happiness is, is when, again, you can do that in communion with other persons. That is the only real flourishing. There is no such thing, no such thing as a happy human person who does this alone. Full stop. Indeed, it is precisely in having these amazing bodies that we do and in enacting rationality that we are able to live in real communion with others. And we live in an age that ignores, misses, forgets that we have nothing if we don't put first how do we live in virtuous communion with one another in our homes and in our friendships. I just want to end with what, what are some takeaway points of what might we do practically? I'm just going to reel them off and I'm going to close and hopefully then we can have a little bit of discussion. Take away our point on body and soul. Let's think in terms of cultivating the realm of the bodily. Let's think in terms of cultivating the realm of the bodily so that it might serve the spiritual better. Such an easy thing for us to put into practice in our daily lives. Let's realize the dignity of our bodies is that it incarnates. They incarnate and serve spiritual realities. What a practical thing that we can think about. Let's realize, moving on, that rationality is something that we have to cultivate. To live rationally well, to be able to understand, we need to do things exactly like, ladies and gentlemen, you have done tonight by coming here. To be willing to give up some time to study and to think and to sit in a chair for a little while where our body starts to get uncomfortable, but we've tuned in and we're exercising our mind and we begin to grasp something and we say, that makes all the difference. I've got to understand this. We need to cultivate through study and through meditation and through good discussions again and again and again every day of our life so that we can live in memory of the truths that make us who we are, and then finally make living in relationship and communion a first principle in our lives. And judge things in our day, judge the technologies that we use, judge the places that we go, the practices that we have. Do these things enhance real relationships with other people? And if not, what are we doing? Take the truth of we are made for communion, and put that first. I thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen, for your attention. Thank you. Thank you, thank you very much, Dr.
come back for an inspiring presentation. It was it was questions like that and um, insights like that that I first encountered at Christendom College when I was a freshman in your class, and it did make all the difference in the world thank to you. me. So thank you very much uh, you. again for a wonderful presentation here, for the dedication, for sharing these insights with us. Thank You're you. Welcome. Uh, all right, question and answer. I was curious as to, you talked about uh, sort of basically community and friendship. How does uh, one overcome damage um, that, that gets in the way of a friendship? Uh, that is a great question. Uh, a, a, a quick thought on that would be, in God's great providence, the difficulties that come up in relationships while often not apparent at the time, are part of them beautifully becoming what they would not have been had there not been that difficulty. And, and sometimes that's very hard for us to see, but a, a, but a friendship and spousal relationships, they are worked out. And it, we, we all know this in varying degrees from the inside. They, they have to be worked out. And in the working out of them, they become better. They become what they can be. And somehow our hurts have to be a part of that. And I think some, sometimes that takes great faith to be able to see that. But again, that's a great question. I, I very much appreciate that. What would you say are the biggest institutional barriers uh, to people discovering who they are and what they were meant to be? That, wow, another great um, uh, question. Right, the U.S. government, of course. <laughs> Just kidding. Institutional barriers. Here, here's the thing. It's really great. Many important institutions are very problematic and, and are acting as barriers. My inclination is to go the direction of saying this. We do need to be very aware of the societal, cultural trends in how they are working against us. I don't know if I so much would think, while I completely would affirm there are institutions that are problems, I would, I would be inclined to turn our attention towards things that are a little easier to grasp, rather than thinking about the institutions that are the problem, because then we might simply get focused on how can we change that institution. Just to look more generally at the general problematic trends, and then how practices, customs, habits of thinking, ways of imagining, and then set about changing that, I'll say, locally. I'm going to take a little bit of liberty. This isn't exactly your question, but I hope that you'll allow me. We, we, the key to responding to a very difficult situation that we're in is we start small and we build out. I always love Mother Teresa's, of course, point. We're not called to be successful. We're called to be faithful. We need to start in our relationships, our close relationships, our family and our friends. How can we start to do other customs that instantiate, that enflesh these kinds of principles. So your question is, is again, is fabulous. There's, there's so many, what, what can we start to point to? The ways that we entertain ourselves, the way that we're obsessed with the news, the way that we're accept, obsessed with other people's problems as opposed to our own problems. So many things in the education system, so many things that are going on governmentally. So, but 
but it's, it's it, at times I think we can tend to focus our attention on all oh, these problems in the church. Well, if only the bishops would such and such, and we keep looking at institutions. I try to remind myself, I need to do a better job in my household. And if I don't do that, nothing's going to happen. Thank you for the question. Um, flourishing in living things other than man is usually um, defined by age. But in man, that doesn't necessarily seem to be the case. So how would you say the flourishing of a child is different than that of the, an adult or the same? How is the flourishing of the child different? Well, children are always a great topic. What, could, we, could we try this on for size? A flourishing child is one that is an environment that is well designed to bring it towards maturity well. So you're absolutely right that a flourishing child is a, is a different thing than a flourishing adult. But in the raising and the forming of children, we always have to have firmly in mind what they are called to be and what we can do and what we can't do as far as trying to form them, surround them with what they should be surrounded with and protect them from what they should be protected from so that they might grow well in that direction. And again, talk about something that is so hard when they're being assaulted in so many ways that seem to be out of our control. And I, my mind always goes back to the household. We have to f be vigilant in saying no to a whole set of things and in saying yes to a whole set of things so that they can be surrounded fundamentally by, by good by those they can trust, by beautiful things. Those are always going to be pain and suffering there too, but they'd be in the context of that. I'll just I'll, I'll close that again. I'm, I'm rambling a bit there. I'm convinced that the child that knows that he or she is loved and can live in confidence in reality, live in confidence in the truth, Everything else will fall into place. And that's worth thinking about more. Thank you. Thank you very much, Doctor. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.